The tree of life is Jesus. The tree of life is, um, is knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and being filled by Jesus' spirit and doing life uh, with Jesus. I think that's what the tree of life is. He wants us to choose innocence and he wants us to choose life and he wants us to choose mercy and he wants us to choose joy and he wants us to let him be God and we're just to be his people. And that sounds so stinking simple. And yet it's so hard. And here's the thing, when you get into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you eat of it, the problem is it doesn't kill you instantly. This poison goes inside of you and it begins to work slowly. God invites us into situations where things happen to us. Instead of getting into the knowledge of good and evil, God invites us to let those things go through Jesus. Hey, I need to read a letter to you, and um, let me do that, kind of listen. Uh, while I read this letter, I'd like to ask you to lay aside and suspend uh, judgment and expectation for a moment while I do it, and listen to the humanity in my heart. I'm reading this on behalf of someone. I'm saddened to let you know that Marcus and I have decided to postpone our calling to Cambodia. Two years ago, Marcus made me aware of indiscretions that he had committed, none of which were an affair. I sought the Lord, and I felt with my whole heart to continue moving forward in our marriage and forgiveness with my husband. At the core of how Jesus created Marcus, I believe him to be a good and godly man. Over the last few years, we have pursued many avenues of professional help trying to get healthy, as well as working on our marriage, our family, and even the call of God that's on our lives. While I was making progress in believing that Marcus was as well, unfortunately, he continued to struggle with the same indiscretions. Three weeks ago, Marcus acknowledged that he has not been truthful and has misled me and others concerning these issues. My purpose in writing this letter is not to expose or embarrass him, but rather to bring truth, to bring truth and light to this situation. Uh, for now, Marcus and I are separated. I will take care of our six children while he participates in an intense discipleship and rehabilitation ministry. We have stepped down from our role as campus pastors, and I will remain a part of Jubilee and on the staff, but not in the same capacity. Though my heart is heavy, I pray that these shortcomings would not define Marcus or myself to you. Instead, I want to ask that you would be encouraged to live in the light and not allow the enemy to deceive you. You might ask yourself, how can we come alongside and help? I have a simple answer. Pray. Pray for our children. Pray for Marcus. Pray for me. I have a wonderful support system around me. And while there is definitely pain and hurt that I need to work through, I will continue to do so with professional help. The enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus wants to set us free. We serve a God of second chances for the hundredth time. From the beginning of Jubilee, we have declared this church to be a place to discover and recover the promises of God. I would love for you to play an active part in helping my family discover and recover God's promises for us now. I am reminded of Isaiah 54, paraphrased, as God has continually placed this beautiful chapter on my heart. 
It simply reads this way. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth. And remember no more the reproach of widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected. For a brief moment, you feel abandoned, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you, only for a moment. With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. I have compassion for you. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace and undisturbed composure. I am sorry to the leadership of Jubilee and to all of you. Thank you. Amy Pillar. Um, I don't know what to say. Uh, There are some times in leadership where... um, you do your very best to try to, uh, to be authentic and to be transparent and to lead in a way that, um, that's the right thing to do in a difficult situation. Human nature is that we all want to know exactly what's being talked about here. And so I'm going to make it as clear as I can without exposing Because if it were you, you wouldn't want me to expose you either. So here it is. Every human in this room struggles with this issue. Men, it's a battle every one of us face. It's one that Marcus needs to get victory over and has tried for some time to do it. We didn't recognize everything that went with it. We do now, and we're doing all that we can, um, no one more so than he, in order to, uh, to pursue God's health for his life. Our major concern is not um, what will happen between the two of them or what goes on in our church. Our major concern is for um, a son of mine to be whole. And it puts you in a situation to uh, do one of two things. To offer compassion or to sit in a place of judgment. And as pastor, I've done something. Um, This weekend, we're in a series called The Tree of Life. And I altered it because of this to use it as an opportunity to pastor. And so the subject this weekend is how do we respond to somebody else's sin? And I'll just say this as the bridgeway into what I'll teach on. Your response 
to someone else's sin is probably the greatest indication or tell of whether you get grace or not. When you stumble, more often than not, you probably find a way to give yourself grace. Unless you're a person who just constantly beats yourself up. But either one of those are not what I'm trying to go after. It's when we find someone else that's stumbled and fallen. What we give to them is the greatest indication of what we've received from God. Because you can't give what you don't have. And if you don't see yourself in the boat, that we all need grace and mercy. Um, and that our ability to really understand that and to be receiving it then is necessary for how we treat other people. So that's, um, that's where I want to go tonight. You might think to yourself, uh, like, um, man, uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you do things like this? I don't know. It's not that we haven't had to handle things through 20 years that were uncomfortable or difficult or that didn't deal with a moral issue. But um, the difference is simply that each one that you handle is not a roadmap for how to handle the next one. Each one is individual. And you have to deal with it with where that person is right there in space and time. And then what makes this different, and it's in some ways unfair, look at me real quick, he's related to me. And because of that, then the scrutiny becomes all that much more important that I stand up here and have to be transparent. So as I've handled it for other people on our staff, most of the time I've been able to protect the person if we had to remove them from a leadership position. And in this case, I'm forced to have to stand up and acknowledge something that in some ways is unfair to him. But I want, when everything's said and done, for you to always be able to say our pastor, even if it hurt him, walked in integrity. So hence, that's the letter. Amy wrote the letter. I didn't ask her to. It wasn't my plan or device. I actually had written what I thought we would say. But we really felt like the Lord stopped it. And Amy came to me and said, Dad, I believe I'm supposed to write it from my point of view. She said to explain it from my point of view. And she said, I think that if people can see our hearts in it, maybe they can see us as human and not simply as pastors. And I hope that you can do that. Um, it is a fill-in-the-blank thing in order to help learn, so you may want to get a pen or a pencil. Um, I debated... Do I teach the message first and then read, read the letter? And this was my struggle with it. Like if I could get your heart in the place where I believe that God wants it, maybe you could then hear the letter through what I just taught and it would help you. But uh, I decided not to do that for this reason. I don't want anybody to feel like I would manipulate your emotions. So I felt like I'll read to you the facts first, and then I'll teach from the Word, and you can decide for yourself. And at least you'll know that I had your best interest at heart as I tried to do what I, what I did. So, um, This series is called There Are Two Trees. We pull it from Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 9, 15 through 17. The other reason 
I thought I'd read the letter at the end, as I know after I read it, you'll not hear anything else that I say, probably, for the rest of the evening and the weekend, but um, I, I will take a chance. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 is the very first time that we read this concept of two trees. Uh, most of you are probably aware, either because we taught this or you're aware of what the Bible says about it. If not, go along with us for the journey. But uh, when God creates the man and the woman, the Bible says that he creates a garden. It was called Eden. And in the garden, he caused all sorts of trees to grow up out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to look at and good to eat, full of fruit. And in the middle of the garden, there were two trees. Uh, One was the tree of life. And if you eat of that tree, you live. And then the other one is called the knowledge of good and evil. Basically, the premise is simply that if you eat of it, you'll die. I pointed this out the last time that I talked that when you eat of it, it's not instant poison. Sometimes the worst poison is the kind that works slowly. Because if it happened quickly, you'd know, ooh, that was a mistake. But when it happens slow, sometimes we think to ourselves, this is not so bad. And that's exactly what the enemy tells Eve. Why not eat of this tree? Because it'll kill us. Did God really say that? Or is this really the issue? You'll become like him knowing the difference between good and evil. God is not against you having knowledge. Real quickly, he made your brain. He made you to understand math and science. God is brilliant. If you ever read the scriptures through the light of the mathematics it took to put the universe together, you'd understand how smart he is. God is not against you being smart. God doesn't want a bunch of people who when they walk into a room to be together, you hang your intelligence on the door and just go along with everything. He totally wants you to think, and I believe this, that the more you actually scrutinize, think about it, especially through the lens of, hey, God... Teach me and show me. If you do that, it's your intellect, not simply your heart that God wants to engage you at. He wants both of those things for you. So we end up with this picture. uh, If you say, okay, so are you saying, Pastor, then that it's just simply a metaphor? Uh, I would say to you, I really believe there was an Adam and Eve. I believe that there was a garden, and I believe this existed, but I believe that it teaches us something, so we use it as a metaphor. Here's how it reads in the Scripture if you want to... Look at it with me. Uh, Genesis 2, verses 9, 15, and 17. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. Trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil. Again, God's not against any knowledge. What's being said here, and that's what the enemy tempted Eve with, is that you can become like God knowing the difference between good and evil. It, it's, it's sort of a bad translation. God is not against you knowing what's good and what's evil. What's being said is you can become like God. In other words, you can be God and decide for yourself what you want to do. And that's what kills you because you're not God. You were created to know him and to be loved by him and to love him. So in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life, the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. And then he gave him this instruction, a warning. You may freely eat uh, the fruit of every tree that's in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are uh, sure to die. And we know the result is that when the enemy came to tempt, the Bible says that it looked good, uh, appealing, And it was satisfying. 
in its, in its visual. Uh, that's usually sin, isn't it? No sin ever looks ugly. No sin ever looks like, hey, that'll hurt me. All sin is disguised to look like it's going to be good, it's appealing, and it's going to produce something good. Again, it's poison. When you take it into you, it doesn't kill you instantly. How do we know? Because Adam and Eve didn't die instantly physically, but they died spiritually on the spot, which is the open door for all of mankind. The Bible says through one man sin entered the world, through one man sin was dealt with Jesus. Uh, the point simply is that uh, some, some death is worse than physical death. People that die before they're dead. And that's what sin does to a person. Man, it kills you. The Bible says the wages of sin is it's death, but the gift of God is life. It just comes back to this life-death issue all the time. So I'll just say it one more time. The tree of life, while I believe that this is literal, it is also a metaphor. The tree of life is Jesus. God wants you to live your life through Jesus. He wants you to... Tr uh, the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy, gentleness, self-control. Uh, a better way to understand those, that is the, the um, personality of Jesus. Jesus is love, and Jesus is joy, and Jesus is peace. And so the invitation is, live your life in Christ so that you choose love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. So that when stuff happens to you, you're not controlled by the stuff, you control the stuff. You can't stop that from happening, but you can control what you do here. And so the invitation is through Jesus you get life, but if you go with the knowledge of good and evil and you decide how you want to handle all that stuff, you're taking poison into yourself. And even though it may not kill you on the spot long term, it will kill you. Anybody in here know someone who bit the fruit of bitterness? That at one time, it, when, you, when you respond to somebody in anger that's wronged you at the time, it feels so good, yes or no? But my goodness, what's the outcome of long-term bitterness? It kills you. You're giving free rent to death. And there's another message. I won't spend a lot of time. The tree of evil is just simply that you can be like God. You can be God. You can act like God. You can be God in your own life, and it's spiritual death. All right, so here's just the nature of the message. Responding to someone else's sin, I want to take the message and be practical. If Jesus is the tree of life and we're supposed to respond through that tree and the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of evil is you can be God and you can decide, then how do we respond to somebody else's sin? Do we respond through what Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and getting grace? Or we respond with our own judgment, our own inclination toward it, our own like, you know, I can't believe, whatever. Responding to someone else's sin the greatest indication that we get, grace get, is our response to someone else's sin. Not even to your own self, because you'll generally give yourself a break. But how you, to, how you respond to someone else's sin is generally our greatest indication that we get grace. We get what God's done for us. All right, Genesis chapter 9 is a story about a person who uh, God used in a phenomenal way, but they made a critical mistake, and then it tells of two responses to this person. Uh, the person is Noah. Ever heard of him? So, so hey, what happened to Noah? Where's Noah at? So uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 is called the hall of faith. And it's people who before Jesus by faith were considered to be righteous. So if you want to know what happened to Noah, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 talks about the righteousness of Noah. So even though Noah made a critical mistake, God is merciful and considered him righteous. Isn't that good news? 
And if you're like, I don't know, <laughs> there's a big problem, right? Okay, uh, so Genesis 9, 20 through 23, it's only four verses. Uh, after the flood, so Noah's story was the flood, right? But after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard, and a vineyard grows. No, not wine. <laughs> okay. Okay, now. <laughs> and money grows on trees. Uh, let's, let's try it again. Uh, a vineyard grows. Grapes. And from grapes you can make. Yeah. Okay. Uh, after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. And one day he drank some wine he had made, and he became drunk. And in his drunkenness, he was so far gone and had done it in such a, a profound way that he ended up laying naked uh, inside of his tent. He was undone. He was uncovered. Uh, in our day and age, it's still embarrassing, but in that day and age, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't begin to culturally explain to you what he had done here. He was undone in front of his family, but as, as the leader and the guy that God had used... This was a no-no. So he gets drunk and he lays, he passes out naked. Uh, Ham, you know what the Bible doesn't tell us here? Here's what, why is he naked? I mean, was it innocent? He's changing his clothes and he just fell over and passed out? Or is he so drunk he's acting a fool? It gives us the indication that he's acting a fool. That he's doing things he shouldn't be doing. Uh, Ham. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked, and here's his response. He went outside the tent and, read it with me, told his brothers. In other words, he gossiped about it. He revealed. He spoke. He, um, he embarrassed him. He undid him. The easiest time to kick somebody is when they're... How about this? The easiest time to kick them is when they're passed out naked. So I'm not being funny right now. I'm just saying no person has a defense when they're in that position right there. And a critical decision has to be made. Do you know the easiest time to shoot somebody is when they're wounded? And can I say that the church infamously and to our discredit has handled our wounded in an abysmal way? We are part hospital. We are... We are a combination of multiple things that God uses. People come to us at the top of their life and at the bottom of their life. We minister to both of those people. Sometimes people that come to us at the top end up at the bottom, and sometimes they come at the bottom and they end up at the top. Bottom line is God loves all of those people wherever they are. And how about this? At some point, you've been in both places. Do you agree with that or not? So a religious person can't even like, no, once I came to Jesus, I've not sinned. Oh. Oh. That doesn't... I've pastored too long. All right, let me just give you the fill in the blanks real quick because I'll run out of time. And I've got a place I want to take us to this weekend at all the campuses. And 
maybe going forward. The first one just simply is this. If you've got a pen or a pencil, are you using the online version of the U-Notes? Just see if you can agree with this. If you can't, then disagree quietly. Everybody stumbles. Say it one more time. Everybody stumbles. Everybody sins, if you prefer that word. Everybody blows it. Everybody falls short of God's glory. Everybody needs a Savior. You didn't need a Savior the day you came to Jesus only. You've needed a Savior every day since then. You won't make it because Jesus saved you one time 25 years ago. You will make it because when you stand in front of God, you will be able to say, I know Him and He knows me. He saved me. Should we be growing in righteousness? Of course. Should we be maturing in that fact? Always. But even people that love God with all of their hearts, that God uses in a profound way, sin. Yes or no? We sin. Everybody stumbles. Verse 21 is so clear. Noah, the guy that God picked. The Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. Think about those words. The preacher of righteousness is the one who stumbled. Let me summarize Noah's mission. It took him a hundred years to build the ark, Steve. A hundred years. Can you imagine working on a project for ten years? <laughs> Let alone a hundred years. Now, here's the most amazing thing. Until this point, he's building a boat. It had never rained on the earth. So how do you even explain what you're doing? Let me try over here on that side. It had never rained on the earth. So how do you explain what you're trying to do? Well, God, just you wouldn't get it. But here's the deal. For a hundred years, Noah preaches every day, get on the ark, get on the ark, get on the ark. A flood is coming, get on the ark, get on the ark. And here's my question if you know the Bible. If you don't, just go along for the ride. But if you know the Bible, when the flood came and the door was closed, how many people listened to Noah? Only his family, eight people total. Here, here, think about this. If the fruit of your ministry after 100 years was eight people. <laughs> no, think about this for just... I, don't laugh about it and think about it. After 100 years, if the most you could show is that eight people listened, would you consider it successful? It would be hard to, yes or no. So maybe I would just simply say this. If no one else but your family follows into the kingdom, you did well. But it would be hard after a hundred years to say, hey, this was successful. And yet, the Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, and God honored him because of his faith in what he did. And that was a hard thing to do. And then we find shortly after that that Noah makes a critical mistake. In a sense, he blows, he stumbles. There's no way around it. I had somebody say one time, well, it, it, it can't be wine, Pastor. It's, I mean, God's just against it. It had to be grape juice. How did he get drunk then? I, I just... That's the bigger miracle then. Never, never mind. Never mind. Okay. Two. Two. Two responses. Here's the first one. Hey, everybody, look, he's naked. Hey, just look at me real quick. How much class, dignity, and maturity does it take to point out somebody else's sin? Do you know how easy it is to point out somebody else's sin? What? Some people think that like the, the ninth gift from the Holy Spirit spiritually was the ability to point out someone's sin. What? God didn't create you to be a sin sniffer. 
The Bible says that love covers a multitude of. It's the whole word from beginning Genesis to Revelation is God's love for us. And if we get that love, we have the chance to give it to other people. It's not a justification of what somebody did. It's, it's not to laugh about it and to say we all do it. It's, it's the downside of humanity. That's not... That, I am saying on our best days, at our best time, we still are all subject while on this planet to stumble and sin. And if you do... How do you want someone to respond to you? Do you want everybody to point it out? Do you want everybody to yell? Look at how naked they are. When we established a church 20 years ago, it was never knowing that 20 years later I'd be standing up preaching this message right here. You understand that? But it was 20 years ago with the full knowledge that we're all in the same boat trying to get to the same place and we all need a Savior. And the greatest thing we can build our church on is truth and mercy. Psalms 85 says this. That God has created truth and mercy to meet together. Do you know how they met together? His name was Jesus. The truth of our sin killed him, but the mercy of God raised him from the dead. And we are partakers, man, of that relationship. His own son points out, look, he's naked, embarrasses, shames him, talks about it, gossips about it. Use whatever word you want to use right there. Here's the one that I think is remarkable. The third one, can I just talk about amazing grace real quickly? Somebody wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. If you have to ask, it probably won't do any good for me to explain it. Grace is not to be known by definition, it's to be experienced through love. Let me give you the picture. So Noah gets drunk. Don't think tent, pup tent. They lived in tents, massive tents. Tents that you could have looked in and seen exactly what's going on. Noah apparently, I'm paraphrasing, if you think I'm wrong, fine. Noah apparently acted a fool and passes out drunk and exposed to the world in his sin. One son walks in and leaves and then shames his father by pointing out, look, he's naked. Can you believe he would? I don't know what the conversation was, but at the minimum, he exposes him. And then the other two sons do the most remarkable thing. The Bible says uh, here a robe, this translation. Uh, one of them says blanket. Um, they stand... Want to help me? No. Yeah. Stand here. <laughs> Face that way. <laughs> I knew I should have picked somebody else. Um, <laughs> this is an invisible blanket between the two of us. Hold it on your shoulder like I'm doing. Noah's back here naked on the floor. Let's cover him up. They walk in backwards, not looking. And they lay the blanket over him this way, and then they leave the tent. And that seems, thank you, bro, thank you. That seems so insignificant and so small, and what's the big deal? But it probably is the greatest metaphor for what we can do when someone else is exposed and has lost all of their dignity and all that they've worked hard for. You know, the saying is that uh, trust is that one thing that takes so long to build and can be undone in a moment. 
one indiscretion. Yes or no? What I love about this right here is that these two men understand what he's up against right now, and they do something. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Instead of pointing and saying, look how undone you are, Jesus in his love, God so loved that he gave us a blanket. That might have been worth the price of admission right there. He so loved you that he covered you. He so loved you that he picked your life up out of the muck and the mire. And this is what I mean. The greatest indication of whether you get grace is your response to somebody else. Because a person who doesn't get what God's done for them can't give it to somebody else because they've never received it themselves. And it probably tells us more how you feel about your own sin. You probably condemn yourself, but you don't talk about it out loud to anybody else. But I bet you struggle with it, and you're trapped in it. And what these two sons do for their father simply is to walk in backwards, to lay this blanket on him, not even looking at him, and to leave. It doesn't deny what he did. It doesn't change what he did. It can't, you can't go back and erase history but it does give dignity back to a human who deserves dignity. And so do you, and so do you, and so do you, and so do I. So does my son-in-law. Um, then a funky little saying, what would Jesus do? Remember that? The bracelets, the stickers. Want to know? Uh, John chapter 8, 1 through 11. I'll just read it real quick. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered around, and he sat down to try to teach them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law, that's an important distinction. The religious people and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd, embarrassing her, yelling out loud what her sin was. Exposing her. Teacher. They said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I wonder if she was nude. The Bible doesn't say that, but if she was caught in the act of adultery, she had her clothes off. Do you agree? I just wonder if they grabbed her in order to expose her and put her out in front of everybody just like she was. Teacher. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, but what do you say? This is important. Look at this. Uh, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. They had no interest in what the law of Moses said. They had no interest in doing right. They had no interest in what is justice. They have no interest in how do we figure out what's truth versus grace. They have no interest. Here's what they want. They want to kill this woman. They want to get Jesus. It's the bottom line. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Jesus, always, always, the master of all situations, never drawn into a conflict that he wasn't prepared for, never saying anything that he wasn't ready to say. In fact, by the way, Jesus said this, I don't do anything or say anything that the Father hasn't done or said. So every response that Jesus gives is what the Father in heaven has done. So if Jesus gives mercy, then he is revealing God's heart in heaven, yes or no? And if Jesus throws a stone, then he's revealing God's heart in heaven. And if Jesus says, you're right, let's get her. And he's revealing God's heart in heaven. And so Jesus bends down doing the most 
Like, what are you doing? And he begins to write in the dirt. Uh, in the Greek, it's the word cartographo, graph. He's writing a graph. What's on the graph? Don't know, but I like to speculate. Perhaps he's writing the name of the oldest Pharisee there. John. And then begins to write the sins of John that day. It would be difficult to throw a stone while seeing your sins written for everybody else to see. It would sort of disarm you. It would at least stop you for a moment. And he just begins to write in the dirt. And we don't know what he wrote. I'm not sure exactly. What, but he's writing. And while he writes in the dirt, uh, he does this. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, Okay, want an answer? Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone at her. Then he stooped down again and began to write in the dust. Maybe just to reinforce what he was saying. When the accusers heard this, look at this. They slipped away one by one. They came running in loudly. But now they slink out. And here's the order. Uh, beginning with the oldest. In this case, the only benefit of being old is that he was convinced first, uh, I better get out of here now. Beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman and then his response to her has to be looked at fully because to not see all that he did is to misapply grace in a way that's not what God wants. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. If it stopped right there, if it stops right there, it gives a picture of grace that's probably, it's probably unbalanced with truth. But it goes further. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then this sentence, go and say it with me. Okay, so look at me real quick. Jesus doesn't justify rubber stamp, wink at her, turn away from her sin. But he offers her two things. The first one simply is, I offer you mercy. And the second one is, here's life. Don't walk on this path anymore. It's killing you. You're taking in poison every day. This is going to destroy you. It's going to kill you. I love you. And I'm not condemning you, but I'm telling you right now, don't keep walking this way because it will destroy you. Hmm. I don't know if you're hearing what I'm, what I'm saying or not. So, so let's be specific. Let me. I, how do you apply? If Jesus is the tree of life, if the knowledge of good and evil is is you can be God, you can decide how to handle it. You can apply your own judgment. You can. If if that, how do you apply the tree of life in this situation? I'll just give you three things. The first one simply is this: truth is our guide in this. Truth is always our guide. Never ignore the truth. Never walk away from the truth. Never try to figure out how to soften the truth. Don't change the truth. Truth is the guide. John chapter 18, uh, 38 is probably the most common um, situation today when you tell people, how, here's the truth. People respond like Pontius Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus, um, uh, uh, what is, what is, what is, Truth. When you stand up and say to somebody, hey, there is ultimate truth. There's truth out there. What people generally say is, you have your truth and I have my truth. They answer, what is truth? <laughs> All right, 
We're not trying to decide what truth is. Let's, let's look at this. Our, our next verse is simply Jesus talking about what truth is. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way and the and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to apply the truth of life to it, if Jesus is the tree of life, then we go to Jesus with how to handle this situation. We just simply ask Jesus, how have you handled this situation? We know that God gives mercy, but he also handles truth. Truth is our guide. The truth of the matter is, listen to me real quickly, Marcus disqualified himself from pastoral leadership. That's truth. I hope you heard what I just said, because it hurts me. But I'm not ducking. I'm not justifying. I'm not turning my head. I'm not treating someone in this manner and someone else in that manner. I'm applying truth in the situation. Even if you think like, Pastor, that's harsh truth. The Bible gives us a guideline, especially for pastors. Restoration is our priority. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Look at this right here. Uh, Brothers and sisters. So remember, every time I've read any scripture that says brothers and sisters, I point out to people, it's written to people in a church. Because the world is not brothers and sisters, right? So Paul is dealing with a situation of people in church who have sinned. Can you imagine people in church sin? (laughs) This has to be something new in 2018. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if another believer, this is how we know it's written to a church, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should, give me the words here, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Okay, some translations say that we should restore that brother or sister. Now, some people mistranslate that, and they believe, pastors generally are the ones, that when a pastor stumbles, what they'll take that verse, restore them back to their position. But that's not what this is teaching. Restore them back to dignity and a place inside of a body. Let them know that we love you, and we care for you, and we are like you. And maybe that's not your issue, but what is your issue? And if I was Jesus and sat down and wrote a graph, what would I write? And if you're like, I wouldn't be up there to find out. You're smart. Neither would I. That is not the line I want to be in. Truth is our guide, but restoration is our priority. And trying to figure out how to do that is absolutely critical. And so the steps that he's taking right now and what's happening. It is a problem that we can't fix in conventional methods. We've tried over and over and over. So it goes to another level where people who are more skilled at dealing with this issue will deal with it. But our hope is not to do this, to push him away and out. The hope is that at some point he could walk back in here with his head up, his shoulders back, and that we would applaud him and say, welcome back. And if you think, well, that's because... He's related to you. That's what our church needs to be built on. And that's what I've tried to build it on behind the scenes for 20 years. 
And it's unfair in some ways that because of the position, you have to know more about it than you would about somebody else. That's what we work on. Restoration is the priority. Three, bottom line, this is it. It's where my heart is at. It's where our staff is at. It's, I hope, what our church does. Love is our response. Jesus said it best this way right here. Look at this, man. This is just like uh, the words. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my... Yeah, your love for one another. How you respond to one another. Uh, Here's what the Bible says. Um, We know what love is. Because God first loved us. The condition that he found us in was messed up. He didn't wait until we got our act together to then love us. He loved us in the position that we were at. So love, this love that he's talking about is that unconditional love of we love you. Micah 6.8. Here's a life verse. A life verse. It's the second part of the verse. I try to practice this on an ongoing basis whenever I have to handle something that's difficult or when I'm just thinking about how I want to live my life going forward in the world on a day-to-day basis, it simply reads this way. This is what God requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Look at me real quick. To do right, love mercy, walk humbly. Super simple, huh? Really easy. Can I just be honest with you? I'd like to be any place else but right here, right now. I, I, I felt the confidence. Lord, thank you for saying that. I felt the confidence that for 20 years, I am authentic. I'm a lot of things. I know. But I am authentic. It is real. And I did feel I could stand in front of my church and even in a difficult situation tell the truth and show how to lead through it. But here's what I'd really like to do. I'd like to offer my resignation. I'd like to go away. And I'd like to stop doing this. It's hard. Look, no, it's not. It's, I'm not doing that. Don't, nobody needs to talk me out of it. Don't, I'm just telling you. I'm trying to be authentic with you. I, there's no joy in my heart. There's, there is embarrassment in me right now. There is already the war in my mind of have I said the wrong thing? Did I lead through this the wrong way? Did I, did I, and you know, the great thing is you all get to go home and decide that for yourselves and nobody has to stand up here tomorrow and do it all over again except me. I'm doing the best I know how to do. I'm trying to take the tree of life and everything that I'm teaching you I'm trying to live it out in front of you right now. That's why I did it this way. A leader can't stand up and say stuff that he or she doesn't do themselves. If it doesn't work for me, why would I ever try to tell you it'll work for you? That's BS. And that is not who I am and that is not what I believe. I am trying, we are trying, our staff is trying to do this the very best way that we know how. We're not happy with it. We're not comfortable with it, but we do believe it's what we have to deal with right now. And our ability to deal with this in a life-giving manner allows our church to show, here's how we deal with stuff when it happens, because it happens. How do we recover from it? The righteous may fall seven times, but seven times they get back up, man. We're not defined by how we fall. We're defined by if we get back up. That's it. 
That's it. Okay, I'm done. I've taken a long time to, to, to say what I needed to say. We've got other services that need to happen. Uh, the whole thing comes down to, I, I, I need to say this. Okay, I'm not going to ask for any response from you. I am not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come down here. I'm not going to ask you to go for prayer. I recognize what I'm about to say. Believe me, I recognize what I'm about to say. But I need to say this. I know that he's not the only man dealing with this. And to varying degrees inside of our church. Some of you right now are holding your breath, praying I'll get by this very quickly. But you need to hear what I'm about to say right now. Before it goes to the level where it's taken out of your hands. Respond to God. You are in a safe place. You are in a place that practices grace and mercy. You are in a place that wants to help you. And you are in a place where we believe the devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to bring you life. You don't have to live your life with this. You don't have to cover it up. You don't have to be trapped by it. You don't have to let this thing define you and live a compartmentalized life. I've got two thoughts. The first one is every pastor that we have, I've asked to make themselves available. Not necessarily this weekend because I recognize the risk that's involved. But if you need help, we can't read your mind. But we are available. In May, I'm doing another gathering of our men and I think we want to have an opportunity to help our guys figure out how to respond to some of these things. So I just want to throw it out there right now, maybe to be thinking about that. But don't allow, man. It, we are not defined by how we fall. We're defined by how we rise. And if nothing else, I promise you, Jesus said this, it was for freedom that he set you free. Just so you can be free. He doesn't want you trapped. And he doesn't want this thing weighing your sin down. And I know from my own experience, it eats a man's soul. It'll harden your heart and eat your soul. Father, our great prayer, the staff's prayer, every campus pastor every person that stands in a position of leadership inside of our church, our prayer is what the enemy intends for evil, God, you'll use for good. What the devil has intended to take people out, we want Jesus to plunder hell with right now. Where the devil has deceived, misled, and trapped, God wants to use right now to bring truth, freedom, and life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We're going to close with worship, and as we just close with worship right now, again, I ask you for no response. I know that some of you, you, you may go home, and it may be a rough, uh, rough situation that you'll walk into because of what I've taught. But don't see this as like it was a mistake or it was a... A negative, I truly believe it's an opportunity for God to be God and to set free. Father, help us with that. And I pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you for listening to me.